Welcome back to Probably About Politics. This episode brought to you by the distance between Kaylee and I, which is ever increasing. (laughs) An episode we've been preparing for for many years uh, since we started recording this only via the internet, alone Mm. in our own two homes. (laughs) distant very separate yes physically socially yeah alex said you know i don't think friendship should be too close because it's high risk so let's start a podcast and talk at a great distance from each other and that's what i'm saying so we're going to talk about some low risk things such as uh actually good news about the environment which is exciting yeah other good news about the environment maybe i'm not entirely sure about kaylee's good news portion but it has to do (laughs) with whales like the animal, <laughs> not the country. Because <laughs> we're not talking about Brexit anymore. <laughs> and then we got uh, a little bit of news about the topic of the year, uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, and how it will impact every election because you can't have huge gatherings of people anymore. And then we're going to go to an election which doesn't have large gatherings of people, which is the Abkhazian presidential election for the second time this year because the first one got canceled, not due to coronavirus. <laughs> and then separate cancellation. And then uh some stories about what Antonio Gutierrez is up to. Uh hint, he is alone in a room. <laughs> and then and then we've got space news as per usual, and the space news programming, let me tell you, is uninterrupted by anything that happens on Earth because nobody cares when you're 6,400 light years away <laughs> <laughs> and you've got vaporized iron in your atmosphere. Nobody cares what's happening on Earth. And so uh, with the help of the very large telescope, and yes, that is its name, uh, we'll be able to leave our troubles. Science is stupid. <laughs> It's not stupid, Kaylee. You can't come up with new good names for everything. And but the spectrometer that's used at this telescope is just called Espresso, so that's fun. <laughs> so we'll get to that uh in maybe two or three hours once we get to the end of this long episode. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> but Kaylee, after that kind of sad intro, but some maybe mm-hmm. distressing things, uh what's going on with the whales? so yeah so like i've I've read a little about this i'm not an expert on whales or phytoplankton but it's uh the article i was reading it was talking about how you know we really look to trees as being like this this uh essential tool to taking co2 out of the uh uh, out of the environment Mm -hmm. and that's true Uh and you plant you, you were what did the what did the federal government the canadian federal government agree to like plant like a billion trees or something a like billion. that in the, yeah. a lot of trees <laughs> but the ocean it also takes up a massive amount of uh of the ge- geography of the world um and yes. also it, as a result of the phytoplankton in it is a big part of taking out the uh, co2 as well and whales specifically whale poop i guess i don't know if it's like poop in the way that we think of poop it it sounds more like it's like a cloud sort of 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 waste i guess for whales uh, <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> okay yes sorry go ahead is 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 uh like a vital food resource in like a symbiotic relationship between uh whales and phytoplankton mm-hmm. um and it whale act like whale activity increases phytoplankton productivity by one percent, um, sort of annually at this point, which means that uh, the fight their their activity is to take the CO two out of, 
the environment. So increasing whale population has a direct correlation (laughs) between increasing the amount of uh, phytoplankton and then the amount of CO2 being uh, captured by them. Ah. So it's, yeah. Apparently the value of a whale right now, total value would be about, each whale on Earth would be about 2 million per whale. And then that makes it about $1 trillion for all the whales in the in the world <laughs> currently wow <laughs> in, that's in a purebred whale like, man market price of carbon and stuff like that yeah so okay was this something new that came out because i saw like a meme about uh like <laughs> about trees and it was like a sad phytoplankton it was like about how trees get all the press for taking all the co2 out of the atmosphere but the phytoplankton do more and nobody cares about them yeah i think I don't, yeah, so it's like not new in that I think we've always sort of known like phytoplankton, or not always, but we've known longer than when I am telling you now that phytoplankton is an important part of it. It's certainly much less visible and much less like the topic of discussion for sure. Um, but then this Dr. Ralph Chami um, sort of started talking about the, the correlation between investing in uh, whales and the increase of. Uh, phytoplankton that could be produced and and sort of the i think that the like you can have a lot more in many ways a lot more phytoplankton than you can have trees globally so it's it's sort of like an infinite way to expand our but it would take a like he points out like it's like something we should invest in but it's not the solution it like it will take a very long time <laughs> okay. It, it, yeah, it's it's not a perfect. It's not like a solution for like solving the problem now, but as a global, as an effort, a part of the effort, I guess. Yeah. Well, hey, so. every, it it takes it takes many different types of things to solve this problem. <laughs> Something else that can be done rather than just feeding the phytoplankton hundreds of billions of dollars worth of whale poop <laughs> is uh, the uh, Virginia Clean Economy Act, which was just passed last week Mm. virginia not necessarily known for being a a super progressive state um but they just passed this new law that by 2045 100 percent of the electricity of virginia has to be produced from renewable resources and they've just delivered all of this funding for offshore uh wind production for 5.2 gigawatts of power uh, and they have a plan actually in place for how these things will go forward and what exact uh, non-renewable resources should be cut back on and when it should happen and pricing's in place and everything. Uh, so it seems like they just, at the state level, went ahead and did it. Yeah, uh, I think that's really, uh, that sounds really interesting given that, like, maybe I'm wrong, uh, maybe you know this, but I, Virginia I also associate as being, like, probably one of the states that Trump would have targeted for coal production and mm-hmm. uh, the coal industry. Yes. So this is, like, a very aggressive transition, I guess. Yeah, so at the state level, they also went for this kind of Green New Deal that they were tr- that we've heard mm-hmm. a lot about in the presidential primaries. Mm-hmm. Sorry, talking about American politics. <laughs> Taboo. <laughs> we'll just beep that out. Um, but... So they tried a Green New Deal first, uh, that got shut down, and there are there's still obviously problems with the legislation. Some people are unhappy mm-hmm. because Dominion, which is like the main energy producer in the state, kind of has a monopoly on these things. And so it's now, the state has said, hey, you have to deliver renewable uh, electricity, but they haven't really set a price on what the targets uh... should be. And so now 
everybody's like, hey, you just forced these people to do this thing, but you didn't tell them how expensive it's allowed to be. So maybe they're just going to charge us a ton of money. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, they're, you know, people are unhappy on both sides, the Democrats and Republicans. Uh, but it's a way forward. And yeah, these I mean, it's on a 25 year timeline. Um, but generally, I mean, everybody's always going to be a little bit unhappy on both sides. But generally across the board everybody especially environmental groups are like hey this is actually a super sick thing yeah i mean it sounds really ambitious like yeah and, and that's sort of what you need to be able to you need yeah. to do in order to transition tra- transition economies that actually and- ambitious legally binding and funding set out so we'll see how it goes <laughs> yeah so you brought that i brought what i've now wor- learned is properly termed fecal plumes uh so this is pretty good good news <laughs> Yeah, not what we would typically think of as poop. <laughs> well explained, Kaylee. Uh, you can take over the science news at the end, and I'll talk about Antonio with these uh, fecal plumes. Um, so, getting to some political news then, mm-hmm. because whales aren't known to be so political, and hey, some politics actually working, so that's not really what we consider politics, but hey, <laughs> widespread shutdowns, that's politics. Yeah. All around the globe, we're always looking for elections to cover. And people ask me when I talk about the show, they say, what do you do when there's no election? I say, there's always an election. People are on yeah. four-year cycles. That means there's there's 200 countries. That's on average once a week. We're okay. Mm-hmm. But not yeah. when no one has an election. <laughs> yes, yes we're we are really being faced with the, the potential our potential demise here. I don't think that that is really realistically going to be what happens. Um, the interestingly, like the CDC um, sort of released guidance on how to run potentially run an election in a COVID uh, or virus like epidemic situation or pandemic, I guess sorry. And and so it's sort of encouraging uh, like if you are sick to stay at home, but also those alternate sort of methods of voting that we've talked about a lot of times, mail-in mm. methods, mm-hmm. early voting can reduce the crowds. Uh, it suggests drive-up voting, which I didn't know was a thing in the U.S. and I don't, I don't know if we have to be a thing, but it could be a solution. The U.S. has a bunch of drive-through stuff. They have drive-through uh, coronavirus testing now too. Oh well, look, you know, <laughs> now we can drive-through vote, and I'm on board. Let's see if we can do this. Do but like, we do. Yeah, and it talks a lot about, like, I guess, like, anybody who's been sort of doing, reading about the coronavirus uh, or COVID-19, the way it's, like, transferred is much more easily, like, through, uh, like, respiratory droplets, and it doesn't Mm -hmm. really stick to surfaces, so maintaining, like, clean polling stations and dispersing the crowd over these different methods could make voting a much more safe process, so the actual act of voting. That doesn't really get into the challenge of campaigning, though, I guess, as much, which yeah. is sort of what we've seen. And having big, empty crowd, empty auditoriums with just <laughs> two or three people standing behind podiums with a great yeah. distance between them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it'll be interesting. I, I mean, like, notably, I just read, like, uh, that the U.S. almost never cancels their election. They didn't even cancel it for the American Civil War. Um, Canada also very, very rarely um, moves an election. We moved it once uh, for the First World War by year, um, and we had two provincial elections move slightly for the Second World War. Mm-hmm. But like in that period was also the Spanish influenza and stuff like that. And it's like that notably impacted turnout, but it did not stop the election from happening. 
So there is right. tends to be a resistance to that. Mm -hmm. We avoid moving our elections as best we can. Um, it does like because a lot of them are sort of like when you have an election is mandate like it's in our legislation. Yeah. Um, so you'd have to pass special legislation, which would mean you'd have to gather for that in the parliament or your legislative different legislative bodies to pass that legislation in order to move it. Um, and then, I mean, if you're not careful about how you do it, you are potentially opening your the door. I mean, for some countries, for maybe even for Canada, opening the door to like more flexibility and when the elections can be held and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? We don't. You don't want to panic make that decision so maybe you can make something temporary but it, there's a lot of question marks around that yeah um yeah or in light of uh a pandemic you can just do what russia did and just declare putin president until 2036 uh <laughs> while no one's paying attention and then hey look at that you don't even have to have an election <laughs> yeah, i mean look costs goes down dramatically yes well uh, not the emotional costs no. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, there are other costs. You're right. Uh, so, but there is a small group of people having an election somewhere in the world, Kaylee. Mm -hmm. And that location is just on the coast of the Black Sea, nestled between Georgia, not Georgia the state, but Georgia the country, and Russia. Mm -hmm. This country, yes. which is potentially not a country, but is generally recognized by most other countries as being a country, more or less. Yeah. Like, does I feel like exist. if you ask, like in Canada, it's probably like country, but then they're doing the finger quotes beside it, you know, country. <laughs> There's a plot of land that has a president, Kaylee, <laughs> and it is on the coast of the Black Sea. This country, right. about 250,000 people, mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, $500 million GDP, Abkhazia. Mm -hmm. Every time throughout the week, I've been saying, hey, this episode, we're going to talk about Abkhazia. People have mm -hmm. had the same reaction as when I talked about, hey, we're going to talk about Transnistria next week, uh, in which everybody <laughs> says, huh? And I say, you heard about the, the Cold War? <laughs> have you heard about the dissolution of the Soviet Union? Uh, to which they reply, yes, but I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, for longtime listeners, if you listen to Transnistria, our episode on Transnistria, it's maybe not as... It's not as much of a sort of a pariah state might be the wrong term for it, but Transnistria is a bit of a much more of a controversial state. Yes. And even though Abkhazia is certainly controversial, you're controversial if Russia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Nauru, and Syria are the only countries that formally recognize you as a republic. <laughs> Like, like <laughs> Canada and the U.S. are not going to go in the United Nations and recognize Abkhazia. But it's, you know, it's a little more state recognition is complicated. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so these guys are having an election. Now, for mm -hmm. our most prudent of probably about politics listeners at home, they might be thinking to themselves, hey, didn't I just read so much news about the Abkhazian election at the start of January? <laughs> <laughs> what? What's going on? Why? And let me tell you, if you're reading about the Abkhazian election from January 8th, you're probably not asking why it's canceled because you know why it's canceled. Yeah. You're on the ground. Yeah. You're writing the article. <laughs> but uh, for those of, for, for, you know, the few listeners at home who, who don't read <laughs> Yeah, uh, the coastal Black Sea Weekly. Uh, <laughs> tell us what 
<laughs> what happened? Well, yeah. So it was basically ended up being a very close election. They have it was a presidential. It's it is and was the presidential election. Yes. Um, you have to sort of get fifty. So you so you had to get fifty percent of the votes for the first round in mm-hmm. middle of, or end of August, I think. Yeah. Um, and then the top two candidates went into the second round that was kajimba raul kajimba who was the incumbent president yes. um versus alkaz kvitsnia mm-hmm. um who uh was the replacement candidate for uh aslan basnani who was poisoned uh mm-hmm. with heavy metals and couldn't run anymore so there was you could already sense that there was maybe a bit of a scandal that existed at that point in the election yeah um and then they went on to vote um, in September for the second round. The margin of difference was like less than 2% or something like that. And I think yeah. it, it did not clear the bar for mm-hmm. uh, appropriate difference between the two candidates it, for one to cleanly be declared president. Um, the Supreme Court of Abkhazia uh, said that it was fine and then there were protests very rampant protests and then they decided never mind not fine <laughs> uh, yeah. and uh yeah kajimba was forced to resign and now there is now they're gearing up for a second election to try again yeah so there's there was a number of elections and postponements that happened there so <laughs> they were supposed to vote in uh the summer at the start of may 2019 mm-hmm. they were like hey our guy got poisoned Right when yeah. uh, Byzania got poisoned, they're like, "Hey, let's move this back," and then eventually they did move it back. Uh, and then when they did finally have the first round of voting with their new Kvitsinia, uh, they have two rounds of voting for president. If you don't mm-hmm. get more than fifty percent in the first round, then you have to go to a second round. Neither yes. of them got more. Nobody got more than fifty percent, but the top two were super close, mm-hmm. right? And then yeah. they just had the second round in january for the top two. Oh, yeah and then neither of them got 50 percent again and they were also so close again yes like just not like one point between them like 48 to 47 basically and notably three percent none of the above and so (laughs) (laughs) what do you do now (laughs) so so they did right they did say hey kajimba okay, well, you got more votes. You didn't get 50%, but we're pretty sure of what the votes are because there's less than 40,000 total votes for each candidate. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty small, so you can count the votes yeah, you can count that. reasonably yeah. precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a day later, the Supreme Court was like, never mind. Actually, we're going to do it again. But it's just you two again. Yeah. Now, how often does the voting public completely changes mind after it's a super super close call like that uh i mean i have i don't know it'll be very interesting it does sound like again there's so much um like this the so it's not it's not the same two candidates um in that um the guy who we mentioned was poisoned he is running now he's running for president but he's also very ill so i don't know what the status on that is um but but his nia is running and he's kind of considered potentially to be a change maker i think that was the sense i was getting from the reading we were doing again there's not a lot to read on this but um and and then 
Kajimba, who also, when he became president, was a bit of a change maker because he threw out the last guy um, in yeah. 2014, um, forcing him to like leave the country, uh, or he had to flee anyway. Um, and so they're both they're both running, but it sounds like a lot of the reason why this election is happening again is because people were upset that it seemed corrupt, that it did not seem as going to change anything in it. And, and they were protesting to the point where the Russian authority, like Russian military, I think, it, uh, intervened to help bring things back into order. Mm-hmm. And and that is, you know, part of the reason why the Supreme Court ultimately annulled the results. Yeah. So Russia does say that Abkhazia is its own country, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, Georgia, which Abkhazia was part of, mm-hmm. <laughs> says that, no, this is still our country back from like 1992 when mm-hmm. the fall the year following the dissolution of the USSR, George <laughs> uh, is kind of its own thing, and then Abkhazia is like, "Hey, we want to be our own thing too. We're just going to say it. We're going to say we're our own mm-hmm. thing." And generally, when parts of countries say we're our own thing, the country of which it is part of uh, says no. Um, yeah. But can you give a little bit of context to like just in general? The Soviet Union, so we're 1991, okay? The Soviet mm-hmm. Union, yeah. done. Then yeah. all these other countries become countries again. Mm-hmm. How, like, how does this happen? And now, like, 30 years later, why <laughs> why is it still happening? Yeah, so I mean, with the, so with the region, the Caucasus, and, and that sort of part of the Soviet Union, um when it sort of dissolved and and broke into countries, it's not actually really breaking down into countries that had previously existed. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time they're making new countries entirely. Which, um, as a rule, not a great idea. Yeah. It Generally almost always, you, yeah, it almost always puts some people in with people that they did not like. And it, you know, gives power, you know, whenever somebody sort of, cutting and chopping things together you can see how it hasn't worked out it hasn't worked out historically well in the continent of africa uh it hasn't worked out particularly well in many parts of uh, the rest of europe uh and eurasia um but yeah so that's essentially a big part of the reason why you have these two regions in georgia there are two regions in georgia uh that are sort of uh are not maybe uh countries without quotation marks but they they essentially have their own governments and are really backed by russia uh as against uh, in in support of not being part of georgia i guess uh but yeah so post the soviet union yeah you do you have the dissolution and then you have russia um as a big power there distributing power in a way that is perhaps most advantageous to them as well. Um, I remember um, I I did like a course on this once and a, a guy who was in politics in a country in the Caucasus said to me, well, I, that he'd heard he'd been in a meeting with a guy who had just gotten a dressing down from Putin saying that, you know, we didn't, <laughs> you don't get to be a country if we didn't let you be a country. We made you. You didn't exist before this. And that's essentially what it, a lot of it is, is these things were sort of arbitrarily d- drawn in some, and to some, there is some nationalism to it for each, there is national, a lot of nationalism of it to it for these areas, mm-hmm. but it, it was a much more 
fluid situation than before because before the Soviet Union, their states were a completely different thing. Like the way that states are defined now is not the same as they were before the Soviet Union. Yeah. To kind of like generally situate where we are and kind of how it's a hotbed for these sorts of things. So the Black Sea, if you're not like looking at a map or generally familiar with kind of the meeting of East and West. (laughs) Um, So Georgia is right between Russia and Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan kind of area. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's kind of, I guess, generally people would hear more about this region for like Turkey's involvement in uh, Syria and Turkey Mm -hmm. and like kind of the, the Syrian civil war and stuff. And we, normally the news just kind of like hops over these three other countries, this other kind of beltway um, between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. Uh, So take a look at a map if you want to like really like know where these countries are. But um, it is, they're kind of tucked out of the way of generally these hotbeds of the last few years, but right on their doorsteps are Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, all these you know, highly disputed places where Russia has been projecting a lot of power since Mm -hmm. the 1980s, right? In uh, the Gulf War and everything. So, I mean, maybe we should do a whole episode on Russia (laughs) in the Middle East. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) Maybe let's not, (laughs) but it would definitely be, I think, an interesting episode. Yeah, Um, it would take a lot of, we'd have to read for a while, I think, but yeah. Yeah, but if you zoom in on uh, Google Maps into that region, you'll see that the air, the the country of Georgia, uh, is listed. Abkhazia is not listed, but there are mm-hmm. small dotted lines outlining where Abkhazia <laughs> is, <laughs> um, but it's not yes. listed on Google Maps. Uh, so if you're trying to find it, that's why you can't find it. Um, but generally, an interesting region that yeah. Uh, is super important um but we don't like these small countries that are right on russia's doorsteps that Mm -hmm. rub shoulders with people who rub shoulders kind of like how kaylee rubs shoulders with (laughs) (laughs) politicians who just get yelled at by vladimir putin so what is (laughs) what are those uh degrees of separation i don't i don't want to hear about it i don't want to know what you do outside the pod <laughs> you do you do your thing uh you come with good stories so that's fine um but these kind of like beltways and little buffer zones that russia has are hugely important um mm-hmm. but we don't you never hear about them yeah and yeah if you look at where yeah where kazia is it is quite clear why russia is pretty willing to prop them up um yeah. and and sort of keep that foothold georgia has while has a lot of influence from russia it also has it is more evenly balanced out by the u.s and sort of western powers um mm-hmm. it's imperfect uh but russia's foothold is there specifically is not as strong but if they can still keep a hold of Abkhazia and uh, and the other country as well, the other country as well in there, um, they can control the region much better. So it's it's very like it's clear what stake they have in it when you kind of look at the map and the the easy access to the to the uh, sea there and much closer access to Turkey and all these hot sort of hotbeds of where action is occurring all the time. 
Yeah. I mean, it's right next to like Sochi in Russia, right? Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. um, an important uh, region of the country, if not necessarily a huge population center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's the Abkhazian election. The actual election is coming up on March 22nd uh, for these two uh, presidential candidates. Um, uh, Aslan Bazania seems to be a front runner, uh, but it remains yeah. a fluid situation <laughs> yeah it's uh, again i think it's it's important to uh not not underestimate the amount of uh russia will probably get what russia wants in that situation yeah uh yeah so but worth watching yeah so if we want to move on and watch some other things kaylee mm-hmm. can you give us uh what you've been seeing with your <laughs> microscopic focus on antonio gutierrez this week just on gutierrez well as like like we have been doing for some time he is uh telecommuting to work now um uh, and uh and has ordered pretty much all of his all the un staff uh unless essential to be also telecommuting and working remotely uh, for about the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. So the UN is at home at the moment. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, that's, you know, uh, a sense of the uh, sense of awareness from the UN. Also, um, he sort of, he said in his video message, because again, he's working from home. He said, we must declare war on the virus. And so this means that countries have to take up response, take on responsibility um, uh, implement effective, effective contaminant strategies, uh, activate and enhance emergency responses, dramatically increase testing capacity uh, and care for patients, patients, and develop life-saving medical interventions. So it's all sort of like coordinating on the research efforts for figuring out how to medically treat the uh, virus and and yeah, really making sure that we work together. So you see a lot of um, like I know China just sent um, a whole bunch of doctors and medical supplies to Italy to try and help them implement uh, the containment and control that they China was able to reach. Um, I mean, there are a few reasons that might be harder in Italy than it was in yeah. China, but um, but that sort of like cooperation to like regardless work regardless of your sort of stance as countries to work all together to get this under control um, and contained. Which uh, hopefully I don't know. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what role the UN plays in that. Uh, while they are also working from home, but uh, who knows? Yeah, I mean, interesting taking an international approach when uh, many regions are taking a very national approach, uh, keeping everything mm-hmm. they can, closing their borders to travelers, mm-hmm. uh, and so maybe this kind of more international cooperative approach could be useful, most likely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Best of luck to well, Antonio Gutierrez uh, yeah. from his probably pretty nice house. <laughs> but I think that I think it's time for us to head out of this planet um, and into space for space news. Space news. Okay, Kaylee. <laughs> yeah. We've never gone. I don't think we've ever talked about exoplanets on this show, have we? Uh, nope, we haven't. I don't know what that is. So an exoplanet is just a planet that's not in our solar system. So it's not like an exoskeleton. Is there, uh, is there a reason that an exoskeleton is an exoskeleton, an exoplanet is an exoplanet? Yep. So they both have the same prefix exo, meaning outside. And so okay. an exoskeleton is 
uh, a skeleton that's outside of the body. So it's like a hard mm-hmm. little shield outside of a bug. Uh, um, and an exoplanet is a planet that's outside of our solar system. Huh. Uh, so that's all for uh, <laughs> Greek this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, okay, so exoplanets, yeah, they're these these planets that are far outside of our solar system. Um, and they're generally really hard to find. Uh, so we point our telescopes uh, at first we are pointing them at stars and then if if the if the planet and the star that we are looking at aligned properly the planet would go right between us and the star and then our telescope would see like a little dim like mm-hmm. a dimming in the amount of light because there's a planet in between you now and you're like oh what else could that be other than maybe a bug flying in front of my telescope or <laughs> an exoplanet flying between my telescope and the sun uh, and so that's how kind of a lot of exoplanets were first discovered. Um, so there's mm. thousands and thousands of planets that have been discovered uh, in the last 20 years through this through this method and also like the wobble method. So if you see the star kind of moving up and down a little bit, you can tell mm. that there's a big exoplanet orbiting it. Oh. Uh, and so that's generally the two methods that we <laughs> use to find exoplanets. How, and many so, times, how many times do you think it was like, oh, we found one and it, it was like a mosquito? Uh, so there are <laughs> so the the telescope that did the most of the exoplanet finding is known mm-hmm. as the kepler space telescope and so mm-hmm. uh there are no bugs in space so that it didn't frequently happen but now we okay, use ground-based but... telescopes um and so uh they ha- have so the way that you actually find them is not just having one dimming event you have this kind of periodic dimming event and so maybe if there's like a really like if there's like a swiss bug that goes back and Mm -hmm. forth on an exact schedule (laughs) then (laughs) then uh it might it might result in a a false exoplanet find but as soon as you did that some other telescope would look for it and they wouldn't have this bug uh so you would not find what you were looking for but i'm sure this has happened at least once (laughs) (laughs) and so this so this planet that we want to talk about um wasp 76b is 640 light years away from earth uh and so a light year is uh the distance that light travels in a year so it's a distance not a speed (laughs) (laughs) uh so you have so basically the thing is we have this planet that is a Mm -hmm. rocky planet and we used to have trouble finding rocky planets uh because they don't dim the light very much and they don't cause the star to wobble very much because they're so small um but we're we're better at finding them now. The royal we, not we and my <laughs> and my telescope. <laughs> uh, and so this planet, really close to its star, and is importantly tidally locked to the star, which we can talk about in a minute. Which basically just means one side of this planet always faces the star, one pl- side of it always faces away from the star. So like our moon mm. has a bright side that always faces us, or mm-hmm. When we look at the moon, we always see the same face of it, right? You can always yeah, see the man yeah. and the moon no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's there's this tidal lock that goes on. And so this planet is in a similar synchronous orbit with its star. And so one side of it's really hot and the other side of it's pretty cold. Uh, so hot, in fact, that uh, the iron on the rocky planet is instantly vaporized in the atmosphere. But... <laughs> Because only one half of it's always facing it, there's kind of a, there's kind of like the day-night line on the planet where 
mm-hmm. it gets cold. It's always in the same spot. And so all of this vaporized iron hits this cold area. And on one side of the planet, it just rains molten iron <laughs> because <laughs> the, the iron condenses and falls to the ground. And on the other side of the planet, it doesn't mm-hmm. rain iron at all because it's going from cold to hot instead of from hot to cold. Mm-hmm. This is kind of, this is the first time uh, this kind of atmospheric chemistry has ever been seen because <laughs> generally these are not conditions uh, which we find that frequently. Uh, and so it's kind of just the luck of finding an exoplanet mm-hmm. that is tidally locked and also hot enough to have these conditions uh, where it is able to rain, you know, space metal, <laughs> which uh, is pretty cool. So, like what, uh, I guess, I don't know if this is, like, is it, what is the, what is the, beyond being cool, what, yeah. what is exciting to know about this? Or like, Well, it so it allows you to kind of look at these atmospheric conditions, which uh, aren't seen in other places. Mm-hmm. And so we can mm-hmm. look at how this affects uh, these, these metals and how they're interacting with the, with the star. Um, it's also uh, the first use of uh, espresso. <laughs> Not the first use of espresso by astronomers because I'm sure they enjoy the beverage, but it is the first use of um, espresso, which is the spectrometer, which looks at these light signals. So that's how we know it's iron. Uh, it mm-hmm. looks at like these molecular signatures that's happening. And so it's kind of this demonstration also of this really good new uh, spectrometer uh, on the European uh, very large telescope in Chile. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, that's kind of the, it's, it's the first time we've ever uh, seen this. Uh, we've not mm-hmm. seen uh, raining metal anywhere before. And so it's kind of, it's just kind of interesting. And there's a lot of new questions to be asked. Also, like, not a planet that we could inhabit. So check that one off the list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, another interesting part of it is this asymmetric atmosphere idea, Mm -hmm. because on most planets, the atmospheres go around Mm. and they're not so even if even if one side's hot, one side's cold, there's just different cloud cover and stuff that kind of moves around. But we actually have a lot of iron on one side in the the sky (laughs) and basically no iron on the other side. And so it's kind of this uh, technology demonstration, this atmosphere. In this uh, asymmetric atmosphere that you're seeing mm-hmm. um, the fact that it's raining molten iron uh, so there's a whole bunch of things kind of uh, coalescing that uh, make it pretty cool uh, it was actually published in nature which uh, I think we've talked about before that nature's a yeah pretty elusive big journal exclusive yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, there's I don't know there's like 50 authors on this thing too it's a it's a big paper well that was good space news and yeah. nothing to do with COVID. <laughs> nothing at all. <laughs> the the es- espresso stands for the Echelle Spectrograph for Rocky Exoplanet and Stable Spectroscopic Observations. Do you think that mostly you just name things for like in science? Like, is that where you get the like the giggles? You know, you're like, this is a fun place that does not have much cost to us. So we could just name yeah. something funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll. We can link in the uh, newsletter. There's a good list of like physics acronyms that are mm. all just really dumb words that <laughs> are attached to like multi million dollar projects, but then they're just called like 
ghost or like <laughs> or you know or i think there's one called so <laughs> good yeah all right this all makes sense well uh, we'll link that list <laughs> <laughs> i'll try and like write it list them in like all the articles in an acronym that will also be funny yeah and it won't happen but i'll try <laughs> <laughs> well uh that's all we have for this episode of probably about politics which was actually i think mostly about uh between the the fecal plumes the the planets <laughs> talking about epidemiology uh and uh new wind power mostly not about politics uh but and look, so we could make it about politics i can do it let's, let's... hey everything's <laughs> politics kaylee uh and so thanks for listening to probably about politics if you have a, a question that you want answered or some space news that you want to tell us about, or you want to see the links that we share, follow us on Twitter at ProbPolitics and tweet at us, or uh, email us at ProbPolitics at gmail.com and get on the mailing list, or just say hi, or go to probpolitics.wixsite.com slash podcast, and uh, you can email us there, or subscribe to the newsletter, uh, and find us again in two weeks with an explainer episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> we love you. Bye. We love you. <laughs>